Europe is going through a process of deciding what it wants to be, both as a political movement and as a functioning body supporting EU citizens. Today at this EPP Group event, we'll take a look at how the discussions here in Brussels are affecting citizens of the European Union and what it all means for Ireland. So welcome along to this event. We're absolutely delighted for everyone viewing. We have a fully packed event for you when we're gonna look really at two main topics through our panels. The first panel is going to be about Ireland in the EU and our second panel, the second half of this event is gonna be about the next generation of European Union citizens. So we have five MEPs here in the studio with me who are gonna be speaking throughout the event. I will introduce each of you uh, soon, but we're delighted to have you here. The first person we're going to hear from though, uh, to, to launch our discussion about Ireland in the EU is Leo Varadkar, the, the Tornista and the president of Fine Gael. Hi, Leo Varadkar here, Tornista, Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Employment and leader of Fine Gael. I want to say I'm really pleased to take part in this conference today and I want to particularly thank the Finnegal MEPs, the five Finnegal MEPs for uh, organising today's important event. Uh, I think that EU membership has been a real success story for Ireland. It's enabled our economy to grow, uh, created jobs all over the country and reversed a tide of emigration that had gone on for generations. It's been very important for rural communities, particularly because of the common agricultural policy and also has caused us to modernise our society, embracing equality and making some very progressive changes to employment law, uh, many of which uh, I'm building on in my current role, uh, and also has given us European citizenship, that right to work or study or travel freely in 27 countries, uh, a citizenship uh, and a set of rights that we really value. Fine Gael, as you know, is the party of Europe, probably Ireland's most pro-European party, uh, in every referendum, we've campaigned for a yes vote, whether we are in government or opposition. And at a European level, we're part of the European People's Party, the influential political grouping, which is the largest in the European Parliament. Over the past couple of years, we've seen enormous European solidarity towards Ireland. So when Brexit happened, Europe stood together to make sure that there wasn't going to be a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And even recently, we were allocated almost a billion euros from the Brexit Adjustment Reserve Fund to help us respond uh, to uh, the impact of Brexit. Uh, also, albeit somewhat imperfectly, we saw the value of European solidarity and cooperation when it came to COVID. The European Medicines Agency authorising new medicines and vaccines on a European-wide basis. The ECDC uh, giving us uh, very useful public health advice. Vaccines being procured on a European-wide basis so that individual countries didn't have to compete with each other, and also the digital COVID cert, which has enabled uh, travel to resume uh, within the European Union and indeed beyond. And I think that what, that what that demonstrates is that when it comes to the big challenges that we face in the decades ahead, whether it's climate action, digitalization, security threats, global trade, small nation states, indeed even large nation states can't deal with these on their own. You have to do it as part of a group, as part of a family, and the European Union is our group and it is our family. Thank you very much. So thanks so much to Leo Varadkar for sending us that video to, to launch this discussion about Ireland and the EU. Uh, firstly, to introduce our MEPs here in the studio, we have Sean Kelly. Thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. How are you doing? Very well, thank you very much. And I'm very proud that uh, we, the five Fine Gael MEPs, being part of the EPP, are organising this event and the first group to do it in the European Parliament. So. We're very happy about that. Yeah, I'm delighted to be here as well. We also have Francis Fitzgerald. Thank you so much for being with us. How are you? Very well. Yeah, thank you. And we have Deirdre Kloon as well. Yep. No less. Great to see you. Thanks, Jack. Good to be here. And Maria Walsh, who is also obviously an EPP group member of the European Parliament here in Brussels. Yeah, delighted and delighted, as Sean said, to really kick off um, the future of Europe uh, and really engage with those watching at home to feed in their commentary and what they want uh, for an ambitious Europe, just like the five of us here. Yeah, and last but not least here in the, in the studio, we'll have Colin Markey, 
another another MEP here in the UPP group. Thank you very much. And like Maria says, I think we're delighted to be here and to be able to have this conversation to engage people in terms of, because ultimately it's everybody's Europe and we want to engage with the people so they have a say in where the direction is going into the future. Yeah, so we're going to hear, we're going to have all five of you here in the studio with us throughout the whole of this event. But we also have Tommy Gorman with us, who's joining us uh, remotely. He's the former Northern editor at RTE, the Irish broadcaster. So really the first question is for you. Well, firstly, I, I wonder if you could tell us where you are, Tommy. I, I don't know exactly where, where you are right now. Yeah, I'm in my home in uh, Sligo in uh, the northwest of Ireland, next door to the Atlantic. Uh, and uh, as well as working in uh, Belfast for 20 years before that, uh, I worked in Brussels as RTE's Europe editor. So it's nice to be back in contact discussing uh, European subjects again. Yeah, and you followed Brexit, uh, I mean, almost minutely throughout uh, the process and, and still going on. We've seen a really, really profound change in the European Union through Brexit. Um, I wonder whether you can shed a bit of light on what sort of European unity has meant through this uh, process and whether you see any light through the current discussions. We've still got this real sticky issue between the British government uh, and the EU on the Northern Ireland Protocol. There was even discussions about it here in Brussels today. I wonder if you can outline your sort of overall impressions of, of what's going on and where we are right now, because it is such a defining issue. Well, I think the immediate future is still very fluid uh, in terms of uh, the British negotiations uh, with the European Commission. I think it's too early to say uh, what Liz Truss stands for. You have uh, instability in the British government at the moment, as well as that you have assembly elections coming up in Northern Ireland. So I think for a number of months, that instability will continue. But in terms of the big picture, you're quite right to use the word profound because our relationship with our nearest neighbour, Britain, has changed dramatically because of Brexit. We joined the European Union together. We discovered how much we had in common. Europe is a very influential part of our peace process. And Ireland discovered a new confidence uh, and a new identity through its European Union membership. I think you heard Leo Varadkar uh, refer to that in some of his remarks uh, that introduced this session. So as I see it, Jack, um, the future is quite uncertain in many respects. We don't know how our relationship with our nearest neighbour is going to develop. We don't know what effect Brexit might have on the process of Irish unification. And I also think that we can say at this stage, we can't say with any certainty how the absence of such a big unit as the United Kingdom from the European Union, how that is going to affect the development of Europe. I'm looking at, for instance, a change of leadership in Germany. I'm looking at elections coming up in France. And I think you have so many moving parts. You throw in Poland, you throw in Hungary. And I think it makes it a very interesting time, a time well worth following but I think a time when it's very, very difficult to make any solid predictions about the future. Yeah, I think it's really interesting what you say there, Tommy, because obviously, as you mentioned, the Polands, the Hungries, all of these other issues play into instability after Brexit. And what's been interesting, actually, I mean, certainly from an Irish perspective, is the country remains incredibly pro-European. Understandably, it's been extremely beneficial for Ireland. Turning to you, Sean, uh, I wonder if you can uh, explain perhaps how you hope uh, the relationship or how vital you see resolving these issues are for Ireland, because with Britain being such a, obviously such a crucial neighbour for, for your country. Yeah, I think when you put aside the politics, an awful lot of good things have happened despite Brexit. Firstly, as Leo Varadkar pointed out, the solidarity by the European Union with Ireland's position and the negotiations by Michel Barnier, who understood Ireland's position very well. And since then, under Vice President Marusevkovic, a lot of progress has been made, which has been underreported. For instance, he went to Northern Ireland, he engaged with civil society there, he came back, he made flexibilities, and also not just in goods, but also medicines. And the reaction from Northern Ireland, because I am the lead uh, MEP for trade. Mm -hmm. So we'd have 
occasional meetings with people and representatives from both sides of the divide was actually amazement that the European Commission would come, listen to them and act. Now, that is something that you won't hear from the Conservative government, especially with elections and so forth going on. So I would be optimistic enough. I think once we keep our head down, work away quietly, uh, with Maurice Sefcovic leading the discussions, I think we'll make a lot of progress. Liz Truss, I think the third or fourth uh, minister he now has to deal with, and over a period of time, that'll pan out. He did say recently, and it was uh, wrongly reported, that if we hadn't finalised arrangements by the end of February, then he was going to stop. That was the meeting he had with us, the contact group, last week. That's not the case. What he said was that if we hadn't made sufficient progress by the end of February, because of the elections coming up, there would be a kind of a break or a sus, because the British would be concentrating in the elections, and then to resume afterwards. He's ready to negotiate every day of the week and has done so. So I think a lot of progress has been made. Also, Ireland is learning to diversify and our export bodies, including Board B, are finding new markets, exporting more to the EU and other countries. So we're developing, but at the same time, we'd obviously love if the British had stayed and maybe someday they will come back. I think Tommy is right, though, you know, that it, it's a very fluid situation. It's been described as, uh, you know, Brexit was the earthquake and now this is the aftershock. And we know mm -hmm. what aftershocks are like. It's very, very fluid. Uh, and the EU is willing to be very flexible. But, of course, the current uh, politics in the UK are impacting and will continue to impact. But I have to say, uh, and uh, Sean has said it as well, the most striking thing for me coming into the European Parliament here has been the incredible solidarity and support for Ireland and for Ireland's position. And that remains. And our businesses have made incredible efforts. I mean, it's, it's very tough and we do need to rebuild the relationship with the UK, but it's going to take time and the EU will need to rebuild its relationship. But it, it's, it's not going to happen overnight because really there's a lot of anger and upset and disappointment uh, that the UK has left. And uh, some of the days we had here where people were crying because they, they had to leave and the upset it generated was really quite enormous. Mm. So, you know, it's going to take a period for things to settle down and particularly we need to get the agreement. Uh, so let's hope in the next few months we can get that. I'm going to come back to you quickly, Tommy. Do you think the Johnson government, um, if, you know, it's on very rocky ground right now with all these sort of parties plaguing him and his leadership. Do you think the current uh, administration in the United Kingdom can uh, rebuild these ties with Ireland and with the European Union? I wonder what your assessment is of that. Jack, I, I, I knew Boris Johnson when he worked in the city where you are tonight. I knew him working with the Daily Telegraph there in the 90s. Uh, and um, when he's in a corner, uh, he works on what's the next hour going to bring? What's the next day going to bring? Boris Johnson doesn't have the space at the moment for the future beyond next week. Uh, he's desperately trying to stay afloat. Uh, and each new day, depending on what Dominic Cummings and people like him are doing, each new day can bring a new crisis or a new challenge. So I think the British focus uh, on their post-Brexit strategy and on where the Northern Ireland Protocol sits, I think they don't have the space, they don't have the bandwidth for dealing with that at the moment. And I think you'll have to wait to see how the future of, say, the Prime Minister is resolved before you see the British returning to that. The only fear I'd have is that Europe could make a useful bogeyman in a situation like this. It could work as distraction therapy. And I think that's a danger that could, I suppose, complicate uh, and bring almost a negativity into those negotiations. Surely you would probably only backfire, though, a little bit. I'm going to move us on from Brexit. I know, you want to you no, say no, something? No, 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 I just... Uh, yeah, well, I agree with Tommy. But I would think that, you, from Europe's point of view, we are they are going to, and they're going to just keep it low-key and focus on the job in hand, which is to get that protocol working and to keep trade flowing, uh, albeit that is difficult under the Brexit terms. But I would 
hope that you won't interfere. I mean, this is a matter for what's happening in the UK now. It's a matter for themselves, albeit I, it's complicating things. I think that's why they brought Mario Sefcovic in. He was a very yeah, solid, he, calm he personality. Focus, right? focus on the job in hand mm. and... That's what he has to deal with. Yeah, no, no sparks, no, no fires. I want to move on, and actually, I'll stay with you, Deirdre, mm. because I know this is something that you, you, sort of follow uh, the health portfolios quite a lot and the health issues. COVID has obviously been a dominating situation mm. for everybody all over the world. I wonder if you can assess how the EU has played a role in COVID in Ireland, and and what the, what's helped Ireland from a COVID perspective. Well, I suppose, obviously, we look back to where we started in 2019 with the pandemic. And, you know, um, there was a lot of confusion at the time trying to get PPE, remember it, and vaccines. And uh, there was a, like, every, some countries shut their borders in Europe, uh, protected what they had, what they had was for themselves. And then it moved on. And you saw where Europe procured vaccines, PPE on behalf of the member states, bought and bought en masse and then distributed based on population. And that really suits, suited Ireland, absolutely, because a small country competing with the likes of the Germans and the French, uh, we wouldn't have been at the races. So that's, I think that was one of the benefits. And from that, if you had said post or pre-pandemic that Europe is going to move further in the health area, in the public health area now, um, no, no, healthcare is a matter for the member states. We, that's what we hear. It's a matter for the member states. But since then, we've seen like a strengthened ECDC, the European Centre for Disease Control. Um, they now have more power in terms of trying to anticipate what's happening, working with the member states to make sure that they're equipped for future pandemics or for future health crises, trying to that, that, that would be to localise the health crisis, working internationally with the WHO, the World Health Organisation, to try and predict and try and prepare. We've also, last week in our plenary session, we voted for a strengthened European Medicines Agency to buy more medicines, to make sure that there won't be medicine shortage, to predict the supply chain in terms of ingredients. We have a health task assessment, health force, assess task force now, assessment to, to really to look at where the weaknesses could be uh, and to bring member states together. And I think that's all um, really positive. Um, it's, it's about what we need to do, you know, just work collaboratively work together. Uh, and so there has been a lot of changes in the health area in, since the pandemic started to just to make, make us more prepared, uh, to make sure that we're not left floundering again and trying to uh, get PPE, get essential medicines, and also a pharmaceutical strategy, which I know Sean is involved in that as well, to make sure that um, we can predict uh, how, how our pharmaceuticals are going to be produced. We can uh, invest where necessary. We can also ensure su supply of uh, raw materials, which is, you know, we, have, we saw gaps in that too in the, in the pandemic. So let's, let's hope we never have to go through that. Let's hope we never, that. but you know, <laughs> who knows where the next, who, who knows where this is going knows? to come from? You know, we could have a biosecurity issue. Mm. Uh, we could have another pandemic. We could have an issue with antimicrobial resistance. You know, we need There's to lots. be prepared. And we've seen what can happen. I mean, you wouldn't have thought, we've seen what can happen. So anything is possible in the health area. But Jack, and we need to build on the capacities that we have and just be better prepared. Yeah. I think what uh, COVID has done, and Deirdre just explained it so well, it's given us a new lens into what Europe can do on health yeah. and, and what it needs to do. Because if we are to find yeah. the solutions uh, for the health crisis we face, uh, if we are to share innovation, if we are to make drugs cheaper, we're going to need to do it across Europe. We can no longer do it as, you know, as individual countries. And I think we've seen that so clearly with COVID. And it's a great model you know, to build on and to develop. And I think the public will expect more uh, from Europe in relation to health. Mm. Yeah. If, if, uh, one thing I think for, for me and particularly for youth, you know, youthful voices, learning from the European youth event held in Strasbourg last October, one of the key initiatives mm. and, and demands was mental health. Yeah. Um, and I, I believe what we've learned as, as an EU bloc um, to, for countries to start opening up what is a competency and what perhaps is an open dialogue as Francis and Deirdre shared. The next pandemic, uh, I, 
I really believe is, is the mental health. When we talk about burnout, when we talk about work-life balance, all the initiatives and directives we've already passed through in terms of right to disconnect, even under employment uh, committee, um, we need to ensure if, a, if our future uh, is as ambitious as all five here want uh, and the EPP group want, uh, then it's imperative that our citizens uh, of all ages, but particularly our young people, are able to access work, access third level education, access um, the EU as a whole with the best mental health supports. And, and that's what I would hope in next steps that we begin to really uh, drive forth now. I'm going to come to you in a second, Tommy, but I just want to bring in Colin quickly. I wonder if you, I wonder if you think that uh, we, I mean, it's generally accepted in Brussels spheres that the EU has been pretty successful in the vaccine rollouts in, uh, you know, collective PPE, making sure small member states have, have had access, etc. Do you think that, for instance, Irish citizens are aware of that or perhaps more broader EU citizens? I think they are. I think it's the first time that brought, if you like, mm. Europe's collective response into focus. Like Deirdre mentioned earlier that like if you like medicine or med the health service was, if you like, a national competency. But I think the idea of preventative medicine and that area and the okay. research element, it would seem where Europe could come together effectively and deliver in terms of turning around the research, getting the, the vaccines in and then the rollout. But not only that, there's also, we didn't mention the digital certificate. The digital certificate to have one unified system across Europe that people, that, that, that could be used universally in terms of whatever amount of travel was happening, I think was very important because it, it showed that Europe could work together, could put one system in place between the, the research, the, the rollout of the vaccines, which, like, in any situation was always going to be challenging. And I think people underestimate, like, there was a lot of frustration in the early days. But really, Europe got it together very quickly relative to other parts of the world. And if you look at the Irish situation, the level of vaccination in Ireland, like, clearly, the European drive in terms of vaccination was way ahead of other parts of the world. And I think that's where people can identify with that. Yeah. Absolutely. I'd say that uh, <clears throat> no one saw Brexit coming. Nobody saw COVID coming. Yeah. But now that they have come, I think, as Leo said there, Europe has been galvanised because people are beginning to say to themselves, hold on a minute, we're far better off we're working together than trying to do things on our own. We're far better off within the European Union than being outside the European Union. And I think particularly, Marie mentioned young people, the percentage of young people who are in favour of staying in Europe, even in Ireland, is something like 87 or 88%. It's overwhelming. Yeah. And the same in the United Kingdom. So that's why I say, give them time and they'll come back into the European <laughs> Union. <laughs> I think Sean's right. It's, it's opened a lens now in terms of where else can we take this in the preventative medicine side in terms of vaccines and other areas. It really does leave the question that we can make more of this and we can collectively, we can, the ambition could be greater indeed. And there's and an that's, appetite. Yeah, and that yeah. comes up, as, you, as Maria said, with the European Youth Event and, and under the Council of Europe, yeah. or, as well as in the health, we had a, a meeting this week on uh, the future of Europe and the response from the citizens is, they want Europe to play a stronger role in terms of healthcare, and you know, there, so there's lots, there's a lot we can do there when we work together. Well, and once you get political will from your citizens, you can move much more yeah, with political absolutely. will in the structures. Tommy, I know you wanted to jump in. Sorry, it took it took a while to get back back to you. There's something that should be shouted from the rafters in relation to health, and it's existed for more than 20 years. It's a European Union measure. Um, we had the free movement of goods, we had the free movement of citizens, we had the free movement of capital. And when David Byrne was an Irish health commissioner, he introduced what's called a cross-border directive. And it effectively means that Irish people who want to access health services, services in other member states, they can do so. They can get a budget from their health authorities, they can go and they can get their operations, their knees, their hips, their heart surgery if necessary in another member state. And it's their right as a European citizen. And it's something that's there for everybody. And that in many respects, it's unknown and it's untapped. Some politicians uh, in the national parliament, in the Dáil, are aware of that. And they have been sending people by the busload to Northern Ireland. And even though the UK has left the European Union, the Irish government has brought in special measures to allow that to continue. But this can spread and it can allow people to go to other European member states. And if I was an MEP uh, and if uh, I was looking to solidify my presence and my connection uh, with my constituents, I would be, I would be explaining the, the, the benefits 
of the cross-border directive. An Irish, uh, an Irish commissioner introduced the measure, and I would be shouting it from the raft rafters all day, every day. I know there's one person that has I been shouting it through the rafters. And I know you benefited enormously from the from the healthcare directive. And we've had in, in the Parliament, well, the Commission has proposed a, a cancer plan to try and tackle cancer because it's it is the biggest killer in Europe. And a revision of that cross-border healthcare directive is one of the strong recommendations in it to make it more accessible. Because if you, I mean, we all know the situation on the island of Ireland, uh, but across Europe, you know, it, it is more fragmented. But to really to strengthen that and to, and to ensure that there's predictability for citizens who need that care and that they're not floundering themselves trying to get information. So it's, you're right, it's a really, a really important provision. It doesn't get enough, enough airtime or enough, enough awareness, really, because I know we tried to, before, bring it up and write to the GPs, the representative bodies, write to the consultants to make, you know, like if you have lists, you should be pushing people or recommending them to go to the HSE to talk about this. But, you're, it, you know, there is more coming in that area, a revision of it to strengthen it, make it more accessible and to make it easier for citizens and citizens applying or looking for treatment wherever across Europe, that they would have similar timelines, that they wouldn't be, you wouldn't be uh, excluded or you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't have the same access just because of your address, that it would equal access regardless of where you live. But it's so. a good example, I think, Jack, of how we need to communicate mm. these issues more because it is not well known enough in Ireland, actually. And there are also some bureaucratic hurdles to actually accessing it, which we need to reduce uh, within Ireland. And that's really important because it's a service that's there that could make such a difference to an individual uh, and yet it can be difficult enough to access. But it is there and I think it's a great example of how, you know, we can communicate more about these important initiatives the same way we need to communicate about Erasmus or the, the free interrail. Mm. All of these initiatives bring Europe home uh, to, to, to young people, I think, <laughs> and to the other citizens. I think that's very important because there's so many things that if you like national governments take credit for that the genesis of them or the seed of them was sown at European level mm -hmm. and I suppose in politics by its nature governments always want to get the, get the cred for what's happening and so often then Europe isn't, isn't recognising the role that it played in terms of making so many. Erasmus is a classic example where people can take advantage of, but not just that in so many other sectors pretty much all the standards we have in, in, across in, in, across Europe, that's if you like developing national governments, they were all underpinned by European legislation, and I think that's that's a thing. But not only that, but the opportunities as well, and I think that's something that maybe the focus is off the national government, where in reality the focus perhaps should be on Europe as much. I wonder, Maria. I mean, we're talking here about about issues of focus and making sure that Europe is sort of sold back at home. Do you? We've spoken about how pro. Europe, Ireland is, but you know, in Britain there was a, a long-standing, well, you know, general, you know, there was a sort of underbelly of Brexit feeling that grew into something else. What needs to happen to protect mm. Ireland's place within the European Union? Well, first and foremost, I think the likes of the citizens' dialogue through Conference on the Future of Europe is integral and shouldn't just. Uh, find a, a, a full stop um, uh, this summer. I think it needs to continue. Um, um, we as MEPs, uh, right across the 705 of us, uh, need to find better avenues to communicate and champion the various uh, elements that go on. And, um, and I also think we need to look at, um, if we're going to be really strategic about keeping Europe at the heart um, of, of Ireland and across Europe as a whole. Uh, we need to look at the rise of disinformation. Uh, we need online and offline. We need to look at um, elements that um, you see featured in politics. You mentioned two countries earlier on in terms of Hungary and Poland um, and the fact that Countries like that can block something as 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 credible as the anti-discrimination directive. That is a fundamental framework uh, for every citizen to, to to live, work, and study freely across the EU. Um, but disinformation, if you're going to ask me, like the top the top thing, it's it's that for me because um, the rise of of cyber violence, the rise of hate speech, um, the intensity of which it's coming, and not just to political leaders, um, but right across. We see it uh, in some countries 
studies even around around COVID. You have some Eastern Bloc countries that are less than 40% vaccinated and, and you often wonder a quick flight or, or a quick trip uh, to the most West peripheral, how we are so connected. But I think that just goes to show how our, our former MEPs, our current MEPs, um, our, our, our former broadcasters in terms of Tommy consistently brought home the message that Europe has been um, an absolute anchor to our prosperity. But uh, yeah, one, one, one big ticket item would be disinformation. We're gonna, we're gonna, we have to wrap this half of. <laughs> yeah, right. we've, we've got another half an hour here, but we're, we're gonna, we're gonna turn to Tommy just, just quickly before we wrap up this first half. Tommy, I wonder how, if you can just give us a quick comment on how positive you are, or I mean, hopefully, about Ireland's future in the European Union. Live in interesting times, but if you think about it, for the last two years, our lives have been on hold. You can feel a surge of optimism at the moment people looking forward to getting out there again. I'd say for your elected representatives there who have the difficult task of traveling over and back, moving out to Strasbourg, Brussels, back home, trying to keep things going, and you throw in uh, you know, Zoom calls and the kind of existence they've followed for the last while. So I think there's a chance uh, to go at life again in a more positive way. Uh, and Ireland is a very pro-European country still. Uh, our young population is extremely conscious of the effects Europe, Europe have had uh, uh, on, say, modernising our country. Uh, but I suppose what the jury is out about is where is Europe going? Where are the new leaders? Who are the strong personalities? And what direction is it taking? Uh, and I don't see as yet, because of, say, the political changes in some of the member states and because of those divisions, I don't see a coherent vision from Europe at the moment. I think it's still being worked out and that's where our politicians come in. Tommy, thanks so much for joining us here at this event. We're going to try and thrash out some of those issues. We wanted to talk a bit about security. We also wanted to talk a little bit more about the Conference on the Future of Europe, but we're going to have to move on. So thank you so much to Tommy Gorman, a former broadcaster with RTE, the Irish broadcaster. We really appreciate you being with us today. Okay, so that wraps up our first panel. Stay with us. Uh, we're going to be moving on in just a short moment. So now we're going to move on and we're going to start talking about the next generation of the European Union. This is also going to obviously touch on quite a few of the issues we've already spoken about. Firstly, we're just going to have a short comment that has been sent to us from the European Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen. Dear friends in Ireland, dear European citizens, for two years now, young people have sacrificed so much of their freedom for the health and safety of others. I believe Europe needs a youthful spirit to overcome the pandemic. We want to open new chapters. And this is why we made 2022 the European Year of Youth. And this is why we called our European recovery package Next Generation EU. We are investing in the future that the next generation deserves and dreams of. A healthier, a more digital, and a more sustainable world. This is the aim of our European Green Deal, where Ireland is leading by example with the ambitious Climate Act and the Climate Action Plan. Young people are the change makers of every democracy. So make your voice heard. The future of Europe is in your hands. So thanks so much to the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen for that video. Now, to join us for this discussion, I think it's probably very important that we are joined by Mark McNulty, who's a youth representative of the Nas National Youth Council of Ireland. We still have our five MEPs here in the studio with us. Thank you so much for joining us, Mark. We, we really appreciate it. We've spoken a little bit on, this, uh, on this, this, this event already about the importance of young involvement and the, the, the sentiment, especially in Ireland, of, of young people. I wonder if you can give us a sense of 
how young people in Ireland really are feeling about the EU. There is no other option for young people in Ireland, right? First of all, thanks, Jack, uh, for having me, and thanks to the MEPs as well. It, it's really great to have a chance to voice um, the concerns and I suppose the, the, the positive aspects as well for, for Irish young people. And I think, like we said on the last panel, Irish young people do certainly care about the European Union. Um, and, you know, they understand what it means for Ireland to be a member of the EU. And I think outside of those normal sort of benefits that we talked about, like Erasmus, like freedom of movement and so on and so forth, I think they, that we really do see it as a sense of belonging uh, to the EU, but also to want, of wanting to shape it. And I think this is really well illustrated by, I'm involved in the National Youth Council of Ireland, and by something we did recently with the European Youth Forum. We received 760 ideas uh, from 250 young people um, as part of the Conference of the Future Europe. Um, and they range from everything from, you know, climate to health to social justice to the rule of law and some other areas too. But I think, you know, it's very clear young people really do care about the EU. It kind of is the only show in town. Young people do understand that they want to be part of it. But I think as 25% of the population, we also want to say in policies which impact us. And we want to re really make a mark in our engagement with the EU going forward. And I, I really hope that, you know, Europe will be there to support that. Yeah, I mean, certainly in the European Parliament, the sentiment is, is in that way. And as we heard, they made uh, your, uh, 2022 the European Year of Youth. Maria, I wonder if you can actually explain, uh, perhaps, you know, in Brussels, we sort of talk about these things, the but Brussels what does that speak. actually mean for <laughs> citizens in the EU? Well, essentially, to, to Mark's point, um, it is putting young people, their, what they're asking for, and, and ultimately what they're demanding of us uh, across all three institutions, the Parliament, Commission and the Council, um, to have a concrete plan at the end of this year of where the Europe is, that we are growing up in is going to go, taking in key issues, like I mentioned, mental health, um, not just climate for climate's sake, but I think the circular economy, where the regional balance will go between urban and rural, where further study will take us. Um, and, and I think from an Irish perspective too, another key element that has come up recently at a roundtable that I held with uh, third level student union bodies is, well, Erasmus Plus is there, but is it there for everyone? So again, back to the fundamental principles of why the EU project started in the first place um, and making sure other people are accountable as well as ourselves. Um, the increase of languages of other EU countries is not often felt in Ireland, I don't think, uh, north or south, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, you, you, go, you go out the door here in, in, in Brussels and it's normal for, to have four or five different languages and we need to increase that uh, uh, appetite for languages and listen to young people when they're asking for that appetite. One key fundamental thing though, uh, and hopefully Mark agrees with me, is there is a huge disconnect that happens. Uh, and you said there uh, is the Brussels speak. You know, what's happening in these institutions on behalf of all people, but in particular young people given this panel. Um, and we need to find elements through digital communications, through uh, town halls, through uh, round tables. I think one of our EPP colleagues had suggested on the Culture and Education Committee that we would have hearings um, and youth panels come in after each, uh, uh, for each committee quite regularly, again, to feed back into what it is they want their Europe to shape. So ultimately in a long-winded way, uh, the EU Year of Youth is about empowering younger people and for us folks to, to begin to listen and actually pave the way with them and not, uh, not outside of them. Yeah. But Maria, yeah, it's all, that's right. And it's what Ursula von der Leyen said as well, that the reason this year is European Year of Youth is because young people have, have been so impacted uh, by the pandemic over the last two years. I mean, they've lost out on socialising, on education, on, you know, on, on the job training. There's been, they have been really impacted, and I know uh, Mark would agree with that. But uh, So that's why we have European Year of Youth 2022, to try uh, and to, to encourage young people to get involved, like the National Youth Council is doing, Mark and his colleagues, to, to, to say, where do you want to go? What kind of Europe do you want? How do you want to shape it? And shape, shape is the word that we hear a lot, but... It's, it's, it's their future. I mean, we're talking now in the Conference of Europe about where Europe is going to be in 2030, 2040, 2050. And it's, it's the young people of today will be living in that Europe. Uh, and so let's have their say. That, and the conference, the, the, the representative in the conference is 30% youth. So it's really, it's geared towards young people to trying to get their voices and to influence. Like even if you think of the Rescue EU fund that we have 750 billion borrowed on behalf of the European citizens, 
it's, it's young people will be paying that back when they're yeah. working. Today's young people yeah. will be paying that back. So, you know, it may not, you may not think it affects you today, but it will, you will be living with it. Um, it's the first time Europe has ever taken on debt. So it's, they're serious questions. Uh, and it's not, it, it, I mean, I know when looking at the European Youth Event and submissions in the Citizens Panel that young people have, they really are concerned with climate change, sustainability, you know, looking at the circular economy. That is, if you buy a product that you, you, can, you can see the carbon footprint that it has. So, yeah. and, but there's more to it than that. Rule of law really featured strongly in their discussions and democracy disinformation, as Maria had said. So really, it's the opportunity to get young people involved and to hear their voices and to put a, a strong focus on it this year. I'm going to bring Mark back in quickly and then we'll come to you, Sean. I, I saw you, you put your hand up, Mark. Fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I think one of the things, just to come back to the question that was posed to Maria, you know, when we talk about the European Year of Youth, when it was announced, I think a lot of us were surprised because we just didn't see it coming, but obviously it's very, very welcome. I think it's important to ensure, and, and from your comments, I, I think that very much that, that is something that's coming through, that it's not just, you know, a celebration or another sort of role of events throughout a year that really lead to no lasting impact. I think we need to, you know, engage more young people, engage young people in new ways and make a lasting change. So I think, you know, one of the ways that, that you can do that, and it kind of plays to some of what Maria was saying, is, is the idea of a youth test, not just in areas of policy that are traditional youth areas, you know, not just within that area of the commission. That across all areas of policy that, that are that young people are, are impacted by and i think engaging young people but engaging them through their representative structures through youth councils through student unions like maria mentioned through ngos through things like that is much more important than just going out and looking for you know a young person off the street um we don't you know when we're looking at farmers we bring in the ifa when we're looking at other organizations we bring in their representative groups i think it's really important that we look to do that for youth going forward across all policy areas sure yeah. so I think it's fantastic that this year is the year of youth and fair dues to Ursula van der Leyen for declaring it. And there are a lot of initiatives in Europe, as Marie was pointing out, in relation to Erasmus, the Interrail Pass, that's going to be increased. All those things are important. But the end of the day, there must be some kind of a legacy as a result. And one of the areas I think we need to have a legacy is in education. There are some fantastic programmes. The Blue Star programme is superb. Second level, they have uh, model for, uh, parliaments and they have ambassador programmes. Third level, Erasmus. But I think what is missing, and this comes back to the point made by Tommy Gorman, how many people are actually aware there's cross-border health opportunities? Mm. A, a proper programme on European studies, which I think should be compulsory, right across second level schools in Europe, where they would be given an opportunity to know the history of it, to know their own involvement as a country, to know the opportunities that are there. And particularly, for instance, in Ireland, there are huge opportunities for them to get jobs here. The Irish language is now an official language. Mm -hmm. There are opportunities to become translators or interpreters. That was amazing. Recently, there was in the Commission press room, there was some Irish language yeah. being spoken. So yeah. all that under one programme would be fantastic. Yeah. I think as well, if you look at the priorities uh, that we have at present, um, I often say that, uh, you know, the sort of key areas in Europe, they're about digital, they're about climate, it's about equality and inclusiveness, and that means being inclusive of young people. It's about the recovery, making sure that that's very inclusive as well. And if you take each of those areas, they're all hugely relevant to young people, but we've got to make them relevant and we've got to work out the programmes. For example, if you take digital, I think 70% of businesses now are saying uh, that uh, people are lacking digital skills when they go to recruit. Now, these are the jobs of the future and young people are ahead of the game when it comes to digital, of course, but it's about really having focused programmes that you know, are available and accessible for young people that will give them those jobs. If you take young girls, for example, they need to be doing the STEM subjects and we need to be pushing that at European level into our member states because there's less young women doing STEM subjects now than ever before. It's really worrying right. because so many of the jobs in the future are going to be there. Again, if you take climate change, young people are so interested and I think are teaching us a lot. 
I was in a, a primary school just last Friday in, in Dublin and to see the enthusiasm for, you know, the blue flags and learning about recycling from, you know, very young children. I mean, this is what Europe has done and is doing and I connecting. And I think the more of that we do, the better. But it is about engaging with young people and listening to them. And they will teach us a lot about how to deal with these issues in the coming years. I, I want to bring you in, Column here, though, because this is this is something I think that you know that you focus on in some of your work, because traditionally <laughs> Europe has been focused or suddenly if you turn on the TV, Europe looks like a sort of different thing to what what we talk about in Brussels right now. If you turned it on, it would be Europe's response to the Russian incur potential incursion in Ukraine. Another thing that's a huge focus that you look at and is the biggest pot of money in the European Union still within the budget is agriculture. And that isn't something necessarily that young people are so engaged in, despite it being so important for, for Ireland, which has a large agriculture. Well, clearly, yeah, agriculture is very important for Ireland. And I think, look, at in terms of the longer term, certainly it's vital that if you like, the agricultural sector engages a younger generation. And certainly, I think one of the things in general about the younger generation is whether it be climate, whether it be agriculture, whether it be the various things, education systems or whatever, they'll challenge what's there. And I think the year that we have, this, this year of youth, there'll be the very people that will say to us, like what, what Shauna said, what are the outcomes? What are we going to get out of it? And I think certainly over a lot of sectors, like certainly just to take, even within the education system, I think the needs within the education system are far more fluid than they would have been years ago. And it's a more a adaptable system that, that takes account of people's changing career styles as they go on. I think that's something we need to look at. But back to the agriculture side, I think, like, obviously environment is key to young people and to make a sustainable agriculture going forward and to make sure that we own that, that agenda in terms of developing that with new innovative research and development. Because ultimately, to, 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 at the core of the agriculture of the future is the simple word of sustainability. Mm -hmm. mm. And young people understand that perhaps more than most. And young people ultimately are going to be the ones that will find the research and the development that will, will find the solutions to make our agriculture sustainable into the future. And I think that is, that is critical, that if, if there's a disengagement with agriculture, a sense that maybe, that maybe some would see agriculture as, as, if you like, part of the problem. In reality, we need agriculture yeah. To feed, to feed the, the, and we need agriculture to care for environment. 90% of our environmental ambition comes from the management of the land and the effective management of the land. So really it's, it's about embracing and engaging the a proactive and, and a, if you like, people taking ownership of that, that yeah. agenda. And I think that's, that's what we want to get from young people. I want, I want to come to you, I want to come to Mark on this actually, because we sort of, I mean, he will be able to tell us. Mm. We, we sometimes, I wonder, I wonder if we sometimes flippantly say, you know, <laughs> young people only care about digital, only care about, um, about climate issues. You are in a National Youth Council, in an EU member state. Are young people engaged in the issues of foreign policy, of security, of agriculture? I wonder how it works in your, if you can explain how it works. I really think they are. Um, you know, in the sense of what I said at the start, that we had 760 ideas um, coming through from young people. They range across the gamut from things like, the, you know, down to things like the rule of law and things like that that would be seen traditionally not as a, an area young people particularly care about or particularly understand. Factually, they do. And I think as well on the point of agriculture that was made, uh, made there a second ago, you know, there is young people who really deeply care about agriculture, deeply care about, you know, have grown up on family farms, want to keep that that going, want to you know, engage in more sustainable agricultural practices, things like that. Like just last week, I was on a call for the National Youth Council where we came together through what's called our Young Voices event, where we have a, you know, a very large group of young people come together and discuss issues. And one of my colleagues opened with, you know, as a, as a young farmer from, from Cork, that's, you know, that is a reality. There's young people who care about almost every single issue. You know, you've groups like Rural Youth Europe and you've groups in Ireland that, that care about, you know, agriculture, care about these areas. You will find a group of young people who care about almost any single topic. I'm not going to be able to speak to you about agriculture. It's not my area. <laughs> There's definitely young people there who absolutely could. Yeah. But could I just say, Mark, on, on that, you probably, you're following the European Youth event that was last October. And what came out of that was really the range of issues that young people... Uh, you know, wanted to be addressed, like the rule of law, absolutely figured strongly, and democracy, European values, um, 
the the whole area of uh, even quality, quantum, or quality or voting, unanimous voting in, in foreign policy to to look at that. You know, there, there was lots, a range of areas that um, young people were really are really engaged with. And I would say, well, of course, climate change featured. And of course, also, like, young people are, are consumers and agriculture is about producing food, as Colin you say, so, and really want to see food produced in a sustainable fashion. And, and they're asking those questions. So really, I think if you look at the outcome from the, Euro the European Youth Event last October, the range of issues that uh, young people want addressed, and, and it's, it's reflected too in Mark's work to the National Youth Council. And just to add in, and, and hopefully Mark agrees, you know, as of last November, given the pandemic and all that we are in, we're at about 2.8 million under 25 year olds currently unemployed. Yeah. Um, and when we talk about the year of youth, and I think all of us have, have contributed um, with passion and vigour about making sure younger people at the, are at that podium uh, demanding and we are listening, it's incredibly important that, as again, as we all have shared that, as we build on, as we come out of this pandemic, as we're talking about um, this EU year of youth, as we're talking about empowering young people under the Conference on the Future of Europe, um, that we are tackling hard numbers like 2.8 million young people. Because if we do not fix this quickly um, and sustainably across all sectors, be it agriculture, be it diversification within rural areas and regional imbalances, uh, through education, you know, yeah. innovation, research, the list can go on, um, then we are going to have a very uh, splintered EU in the coming 20, 30 years, as Deirdre put at the outset of this. But of course, what Europe has done, it's raised the biggest amount of money ever in order to help this recovery. Mm. And I think what's going to be... Incredibly as well. I mean, it's unbelievable. It was, it was it's a, it's a, a fantastic response yeah. to the crisis and it has helped every member state. And I think what we have to do now is make sure that that money is spent carefully that it's monitored. We have a role here in the Parliament in monitoring the spending of that money in the Member States and we're going to do that. And that will be very important to make sure that when it is spent, it reaches young people. You know, that educational, appropriate educational opportunities are created, that we prepare for that digital future we were talking about earlier, that we uh, put money into dealing with climate change, getting the innovation that's needed. Uh, so that's a great opportunity to have that amount of money going into our member states, including Ireland. Um, and just to see that it's spent in the interests of young people. And we have such a well-educated, uh, you know, uh, mm. numbers of young people now yeah. that they're well able, as we've seen from Mark and others, you know, to contribute, to give us their ideas uh, and make sure that we build on those ideas. I think that's so important in, ter in terms of, let's say, the step change that could be achieved by, by this investment at this stage. If you consider, let's say, in, the, in our energy systems uh, to make them more sustainable, renewable, mm -hmm. in our housing stock and all these things. Like, one thing about, if you take it from the younger person's perspective, they're looking in the longer term and we need to make the step change now in all elements of how our, how our economy and how our society runs that makes it if you like, more sustainable over the long term. And that's across all sectors. It's across our housing stock, it's across our energy, it's across, as we mentioned, agriculture. And that's enormous investment that we have now. Mm. It, it, mm. It's vital that the young people come out and demand of us that we get yeah. this right. Yeah, I'm going to come back to you in a second, Mark, but we'll just hear from Sean Kelly. No, I just want to say, I think I, Marie and Francis are correct. But we have to be optimistic now because during the recession, all the focus were either a country was going to be in recession or basic minimum growth. Now the forecasts are for good growth all across the European Union. That's going to help mm -hmm. address Marie's uh, position regarding the youth being unemployed. But if you look at just take the digital single market alone, if that's done right, and I agree with Francis on that, if that's done right, it can create anything up to 4 million jobs. Mm. The same with the whole uh, renewable energy. There are thousands and thousands of jobs waiting to be created, renewable energy, etc. But we must do it quickly, we must do it right, and we must, of course, ensure that the young people have the skills and are directed into the places where the jobs are going to be. And that's another challenge in education, especially in career guidance, because the traditional careers aren't going to be careers right. in the next yeah. 10 or 15 years. Yeah. So if the opportunities are there, digital, renewable energy, climate change, 
and young people must be directed into that and then given the opportunities. There's no question that the labour market is going to be forced to be more dynamic in the coming yes. years, without question. I want to turn to you, Mark. Um, we've spoken here about the recovery fund, which is this, you know, multi-billion uh, euros, sort of 800 billion euro now, sort of with inflation. Um, pot of money borrowed on international markets by the European Commission, so from Brussels for the first time in the EU's <coughs> history. And as we heard from Tom, I think Tommy Gorman said it earlier, it's going to be young people that are going to have to pay this off. I wonder if you can shed some light on whether you think uh, young people in Europe are firstly aware of that uh, amount of money and that that process is going on. And firstly, whether and secondly, whether you think that they trust that the EU and this pot of money is going to support people get into work and to, to, to support young people as opposed to just sort of the, the traditional economy, so to speak. So the first part of the question I'll take first, I suppose, I don't think young people are, are as aware as, as perhaps they should be of that, that funding at the European level or or any of that. I don't, I, you know, factually, I don't think they're, most young people are aware of, you know, what, what goes on at a European level, what, you know, uh, sort of funding and, and joint initiatives with actual governments and things like that, there are full stop. This is just an extension of that. There just isn't the communication there of that back to a national level. So I guarantee you, if you were to stop, you know, 50 young people on the street in Dublin or Limerick or Cork, you're not, you know, none of them, I would be surprised if any of them had any awareness towards it. And, you know, that is an issue of communication more than anything else. Mm. Um, I think, you know, young people need to be made aware of that. Do I think that young people, if, if they were made aware of that, would, would believe that it was a you know, worthwhile thing or that it was going to work? I think, you know, I, I would have very high hopes. Like was said at the start, you know, like 87% of Irish young people, you don't want to be part of the EU. I think that, that shows a level of belief um, in, in, you know, a common goal and, and, and things like that. I think young people really want to see strong advancements coming out of this pandemic over the next few years, you know, in terms of not only in terms of just having employment, because that should be a base level, in terms of quality employment, in terms of employment that pays well, employment with good advancement, you know, and, and other things that all come with it towards a, a good life within Europe and a good life within Ireland. So, yes, I think that, you know, if young people were aware of it, they would, they would be quite positive, but I just don't think that awareness is there. Yeah. I, I think an important point as well, Jack, is the... Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of a broader point I'd make. It's the quality of our democracies and political leadership really matters because we can see from this discussion that people are going to have to take sometimes tough decisions, innovative decisions. They're going to have to engage with the, the, the broader population, make sure that people feel involved and engaged, and particularly young people. And, you know, we see in some countries that, you know, democracy is under threat. Uh, the rule of law is under threat. And all of that takes from the kind of issues that we're speaking about and uh, the actions that need to be taken. Mm. Yeah, I, I think would... uh, you can overemphasise the young people will have to pay it back. Mm. But where the European Union is concerned, if they get what they call own resources, yeah. create their own funds through, for instance, carbon border adjustment tax and so forth, then it won't land on young people. But of course, the message has to go out as well to governments, including our own government. You can't keep borrowing forever, even though the interest rates are low and expects down the line someone will pay it back. So you have to balance both. But at the moment, I think things are reasonably under control. And where Europe is concerned with the facility for the regeneration of Europe, that can be paid back, I think, through... Uh, and what they call own resources. We need at least another hour to talk about <laughs> border adjustment mechanisms. And I'm not surprised at Mark's, Mark's response there, of course. Who knows about the 750 billion euro? I mean, who, do, who knows for about every generation, I think yeah. you've asked that question. So it just it goes back to an issue that comes up time and time again. It's about communicating, communicating what happens here. Mm. I mean, is it even that like before, when there was, if Europe was investing in a major infrastructure project, you'd have to, to sign up? EU fund supports this. Um, maybe we need to get back to that. But I, I mean, I'm being facetious. But I do think communication, communication, what happens here, and, and is important. It's important for everybody. But that's two ways too. I think you know, and and um, we, this is what the conference is about. Yep. trying to get people to Engage. give us their opinion and not wait for the next election and say, oh, you know, nobody ever talks to us. Now we're talking, and now we're here to listen. And you know, let's have let's have that conversation about yeah. how we want to shape it. You talk about those signs. Just a slight mm. personal anecdote to, as, as mm. we wrap up, if I may. I did Erasmus in 2009, 
had the best year of my life. Couldn't believe I was being given money to go on a year abroad. <laughs> it's great. Didn't yeah. know it was from the European Union oh, until really? I finished the Erasmus scheme. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, even a, a but simple, that is a problem. Maybe they should have sent you an alert, <laughs> yeah. a notification. We didn't have called. iPhones then. It was, <laughs> I was going to say, you're, you're, you might be showing your age there. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, another, you know, there's 1,900 internships and apprenticeships coming out of the EU institution bubbles each and every, every six months. I mean, many of us, all of us actually mm. advertise every six months to yeah. make sure our younger people are aware of it. Erasmus Plus is not just, uh, I think, over the years has been just for some and not mm. for all. So we're really breaking down the barriers mm. in terms of those with disabilities, mm. those with mental health pressures. Um, and then the funding streams that you are not just going on Erasmus and, and experiencing um, Erasmus as a whole, but like you, you're coming back into the European communication stream and you're, you're talking about your experiences. And I think that if we could bottle uh, Erasmus Plus up in a, I, I think, w a, the yeah. European project is safe for years to come. For yeah. the record, it did do that for me. It did, <laughs> yeah. at the end. Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> We're going to have to wrap the event up. I really, I think we could go on for much longer. Mark McNulty, thank you so much yes. for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah you yeah. can. Thanks, wonderful. Mark. And Mark, well done. <laughs> Um, and so just to say a huge thank you to Francis Fitzgerald, to Colin Markey, to Maria Walsh, to Sean Kelly and to Deirdre Clune here Jack. in the European Parliament, uh, MEPs. Thank you so much to the EPP group. Thank you to all our technical staff as well who've put this event on for us this evening. And thank you to all of you who have watched. Remember to follow the EPP group across social media channels. They will try and bring you as much of the information that we've been talking about that needs to get out there. Good night. <laughs>